Hello, everyone. We're going to be reading Romans 1, 8 through 17. You can look in your bulletin or pull out your smartphone or your traditional Bible. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. Thank you, Angela. Good morning, Lake Ballin Church. Well, it, as you grow older, it's interesting what you begin to remember from your childhood. Uh, I was thinking the other day of uh, when I was a senior in high school. Uh, they had us do this uh, one task in, uh, one of the days, and that was to write down where we would see ourselves in the future. What were our plans? What were our dreams? What did we think would happen uh, in the future? And I remember the things that I wrote down. I wrote down things like, you know, I was going to go study electrical engineering at Georgia Tech. I was going to become an engineer. Uh, I actually wrote this down. I, I was going to marry Debbie. Hard to believe when I was 17. I thought that was my future plan, to marry Debbie. Uh, I also wrote things like, uh, when I retire, I want to retire either on, on the beach or in the mountains. Um, and what they were going to do with these things, they were going to collect all these things up, and I think they were going to put them in a time capsule for us to, to review later. And it's interesting, when I look back at what I wrote, uh, it's amazing, actually, some of the things that I wrote down are, have actually come true. Uh, some of them, we're still waiting to see if they're going to come true. Um, but this, you know, when I was 17, when I wrote those things down about my future plans, I was not yet a Christian, which means I, did, I didn't yet trust in the person and the work of Jesus. And then as such, since I wasn't a Christian, I didn't even think about taking these future plans and desires and bringing them to God through prayer. It wasn't even in my mind. And even, and even though I had hoped that Debbie would be part of my future, I had no concept of the family of God and, and how that could be a part of my future. And of course, because I wasn't a Christian, the gospel, this message of grace, it, it wasn't even a consideration for me when I jotted down those future plans. 
Well, as we're coming to this passage in Romans, we're coming to a section of scripture where Paul is giving us a glimpse. He's giving us a glimpse into his future plans. And these are future plans that you're going to see. They're, they're shaped by prayer. They're motivated by community. And they're fueled by the gospel. Okay? Shaped by prayer, motivated by community, and fueled by the gospel. So as we unpack this, we're going to learn about Paul's plans. And I'm, I'm sure as we unpack it, we're going to learn maybe something that we could take away as we consider our future plans this morning. So look with me now at that first point, plans that are shaped by prayer, verses 8 through 10 and 13. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And then in 13 he says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. And so you can see right away different elements of how prayer has shaped Paul's future plans. First, we see that he thanks God for the Romans and their faith, that this Roman church was a flourishing church. Their faith was being proclaimed throughout the world. They were known. Now, this, again, this is a church that Paul had nothing to do with. He didn't, he didn't found this church. He heard about the faith. He heard about this group of believers. And you see here that he is not envious of their success. He is recognizing, though, that God is already at work in the city of Rome through these people. And at times I think that we, or at least when I think of myself, I can have a very narrow view of the kingdom of God. A small, small view of the kingdom of God. Sometimes I think that it is limited to what's going on here at Lake Baldwin Church. Or maybe even in my own tribe or denomination or even in America. But the kingdom of God is so much bigger than that. So much bigger. God is already at work in all places around planet Earth. And Paul knows that. He knows and he sees that God is at work in the church at Rome. He is not envious. When we see churches that are flourishing, that are preaching the gospel, we, we may see them in our neighborhood. We may see them right down the street. We shouldn't be envious. They're not our competition. No, they are not our competition. We should rejoice we should cheer them on. We should give thanks. That's what Paul is doing. This is not his work. That he's rejoicing. He's giving thanks to God. Secondly, his, his plans are shaped by prayer in that he expresses to God his deep desire. It says in verse 11 that he longed to see them. And, and maybe we may have forgotten this about praying that we can actually pour out to God our longings and our desires. In fact, that's really a part of the relationship that we have with God. God wants the real you to show up, not some made-up version of yourself to present to him. 
He already knows what's going on right in your heart. He knows your desires. He knows your longings. Pour it out to God. That's what a real relationship looks like. Prayer is one of the fundamental primary ways that we express and live out our relationship with God so we can come to him with our desires. You know, Debbie and I, uh, growing in our relationship, that's part of our, our relationship. We tell each other what's going on in our heart. And as you grow deeper in the Lord, that's what you're going to do. You're going to pour out your heart before him. You know, children, they do this really well, right? They, they don't pre-plan what they're going to say. They don't, they don't architect it. They don't think about wording it correctly. They just tell you that they're hungry. They tell you that they're thirsty. They tell you that they want to go to Disney World, and they don't hold back, right? That's what it's like. Unfortunately, when we grow up as adults in this world, we become more sophisticated, we become more put together. We, we become more planned as it, as it comes to our relationship with God and what we present to him. And we feel like we have to have a certain posture towards God and presentation in what he, we bring him. No, God wants the real you to show up in relationship with him. Part of that is bringing your very desires to him. But nextly, when we see how prayer shapes it, we see that Paul brings these desires, but what does he do? He submits it to God's will and his providence in verse 10. Somehow, by God's will, I might now at least succeed in coming to you. Paul submits his desires to the will and the providence of God. God's will being primary, Paul's will being secondary. When I use that word providence, uh, let me explain it this way, try to, to break it down simply for you. It means this providence is how God is working out his will in all of creation. It's how he governs and sustains his creation. And then to bring it home to you, if you are in Christ, it's how God is working out his will in your life for your good and for his glory. That's the providence of God. And we see in the scripture that in God's providence, in Paul's life, verse 13, thus far, I've been prevented in coming. He wanted to go, but he was prevented. You know, Paul would get to Rome according to the providence of God, but not on Paul's timetable, not in Paul's way. He would get there some three years later. And he would get there as a prisoner in chains. And, and when you think about the providence of God in Paul's life, you may be wondering, well, how in the world can that be good for God's people? How, how in the world can that be good for, for Paul? Well, we don't know all of the answers, but we do get a glimpse into Paul's life. We know in that three years what was happening. He was doing ministry. He was planting churches. He would have the opportunity to speak the gospel, this message of grace, to rulers and a king, King Agrippa, governors, Festus, and others. And then when he got taken to Rome as a prisoner, what happened while he was there? Well, he wrote Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, <laughs> wonderful letters that, that today even we are benefiting from. 
God is working out his plan. That is his providence. And Paul knows that God is a good and loving father. And he submits his plans to God's will. Paul would later write in chapter eight that God is working everything for good for his people. He knew that. And so this morning, I encourage you to give your desires. Give your future plans to God. Tell them to him, but hold loosely to them and trust in the goodness of God. This morning, I want you guys to do this to just, to just seal it in. Put your hands out like this. Put them out. With closed fists, though. Closed fists. In your hands are your plans. And I want you now to open your hands. Open your hands to God. And you can put your hands down. Open your hands to God. Let him, let his will, let his providence, let his plans be your plans. You know, some of you know of Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary to Ecuador. She's married to Jim Elliot. Uh, if you know the story, uh, you know that her husband, Jim Elliot, and four others uh, were killed on the mission field by the very people that they were seeking to minister to. This is what Elizabeth Elliot would say about this. Open hands should characterize the soul's attitude towards God. Open to receive what he wants to give. Open to give back what he wants to take. Acceptance of the will of God means relinquishment of our own. If our hands are full of our own plans, there isn't room to receive his. You know, if you really believe that God's plans, his future plans for you are far better, far better than any plans that you could dream up or scheme or architect or engineer, you're gonna open up your hands to God because his way is really the best way. I think of the parent-child relationship where, you know, you're, if you have a very young child, they may think they know what they want, and they may tell it to you. They may demand it in their timing and in their way, but you as mom and, or dad, you have greater experience, you have more wisdom, and you can see that thing they're asking for, whether it's good or not, or whether it needs to happen in their timing or on a different timetable, or if it needs to look different. We can trust that we have a heavenly father who is so much wiser than us. His plans for us are so much better than we could ever imagine. And so we see that Paul's future plans, they're shaped by prayer where he thanks God that, that God is at work already. He expresses his longings and desires to God and he submits them to the providence and the will of God. Then we see that his plans are motivated by community in verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul here is giving one of the reasons why he wants to visit the Romans. He wants to impart a blessing to them, but also he wants to receive a blessing. 
He makes mention of imparting a spiritual gift, but he, he doesn't go on to define it. Perhaps it is his teaching, but, but surely it is his very presence of just showing up because he's saying here in verse 12 that when Christians are together, something very special happens. We get built up in our faith. We get strengthened. We get encouraged. When we see Jesus at work in one another, it does something to our own faith. You know, Paul the Apostle, if you were here last week, we learned a little bit about his biography that Paul was no slouch. He was a very learned individual. He was a smart dude. Here we have the mighty learned apostle believing and saying that he was going to be encouraged by these beginner Romans, that they had something to offer even to him. And it's a great lesson for us to walk away with. If you're here this morning, you're an older believer, you've got decades in the faith, think about what it's like to be uh, around young believers, people who just came to Christ. You know, they cannot shut up about how great Jesus is. They're infectious. They're wonderfully naive. They're great to be around. And older people in the faith, we need to be around those who have just come to Christ. And those who have just come to Christ need to be around those who are older in Christ, who have the long road and journey of faith, who have the wisdom and experience. In other words, we need each other. One of the beautiful things about Baldwin Church, if you're, if you're new here, that you will experience is we are a multi-generational church. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank God. What a blessing that we have that. And this is how church works. We benefit from each other. Everyone is needed, even from the crying baby all the way to the 99-year-old who can barely walk and barely hear. There's no insignificant person in the body of Christ. Everyone is needed. And so to bring it home, when we opt out of the faith community, when we opt out of the family of God, we are missing out on perhaps one of the most vital ways that God intends to strengthen and to encourage us in our faith. And so if you're here this morning, if you are weak in faith, if you're here this morning, you're coming discouraged, press into God's family. He means to strengthen you. He means to encourage you by it. If you're here this morning, you want to grow in, in your faith, press into God's family. He is designed for us to grow together. You heard from Eric this morning and from a number of our small group leaders. We're focusing on community this month. Why? Because we see in this passage how vital it is, the faith community. This is how God works. He intends for us to grow in being strengthened together. I hope you will opt into God's community. And so we see in the scripture that everyone has something to give. If you have Jesus in you, you have something to give. Whether Jesus just came into your life or it's been, he's been there for 50 years, you have something to give. And I'm encouraging you to press in. 
Do that hard work of getting to know people in God's community. And perhaps for you, do even the harder work than that of allowing people to know you, to let them into your life. You know, one of the greatest gifts that we can give one another is to let others know how much we too need Jesus. One of the greatest gifts that we can give one another to let other people know that we need Jesus too. This requires humility. This requires God's grace in our lives. This requires security from God, approval from God. It's one of the greatest gifts that we can give one another. You know, I was reflecting. <clears throat> I've been here, actually, can you believe it, just a little over one year. And as I've reflected on the year and, and tried to, to think about what has happened, you know, one of the things that have stood out to me is this, this very idea of, of faith encouraging faith, your faith encouraging my faith. As I've had the privilege to get to know some of you and to hear your story, to see how God is working in your life, I see Jesus in you and, and it, it encourages me. When times are good for you and I see Jesus it encourages you even when and probably especially when you're going through the hard times, especially when you are caught in sin, especially when you are stuck. And I see glimpses of Jesus. Yes, he has not left you. He's still at work. You know what? It encourages me. It strengthens me. So I look back on this entire year and I say, probably the greatest encouragement that I have received is seeing Jesus in you. It has strengthened my faith. It has caused me to love you more and has caused me to love God even more. So let me encourage you. Opt into God's community. Press into the people of God. And so Paul, when he considers his future plans, he opens his hands in prayer to God. He's motivated by the community of God's people. And then lastly, we see that his plans are fueled by the gospel in verses 15 through 17, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the fuel for Paul's future plans. It says in verse 15 that he was eager to preach to them. And you may be saying to yourself, oh, wait a second, hold the phone. Aren't, aren't we talking about this Roman church that in verse eight it says that their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world? And Paul is saying that he wants to give them the gospel again? Why is that? Well, it's because we never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is for the found. You know, we don't, we don't receive the gospel and then go on to something more meteor. That meteor thing we go on to is growing deeper, sinking deeper in this message of grace, understanding the depth and the width and the height and the length of the love of God that, that he pours out us on us in his son, Jesus our need for the gospel, it never dwindles. 
It never fades. And, and what is Paul saying when he wants to come to Rome and preach the gospel to them? He's saying he wants to give them more of Jesus. He wants to give them more of Jesus. That's exactly what they need. That's what we need this morning. We need more of Jesus in the message of the gospel. And why is that? Well, it's because the gospel, it's not just some tenets of truth or philosophy that you're supposed to try to understand or maybe embrace. It's not that. Scripture says it is the very power of God to save us. The message of grace, the gospel, this good news is the very power of God to save us and to give us new life, to take dead people and make us into a new creation. It's, it's not just tenets of faith. It's not just assertions of truth. It is power to resurrect you. And it presupposes that we need resurrection. It presupposes that we need saving, that we even need a new life. And why do we need all this? Well, we need it because we have a broken relationship with God because of our sin. We have broken our relationship with God because we have broken his law. We have violated his character. And so our relationship is broken, and we need to make it right and so how do we make our relationship right with God? What can we do? This is, the, this is the good news this morning. It has been done for us. You see, when you break a law, think about speeding, for example. If you, if you speed and you get caught, you have to pay the penalty for that. Your sin and breaking of God's law has to be paid for in some way. That is Jesus' blood. That is, that is on one side, but on the other side, on the positive side, we not only have to not break the law, but we have to keep the law. We have to be, we have to be keepers of the law too. That is Jesus' righteousness. That is Jesus' righteousness, his blood and righteousness. That's what we stand upon. And so we need to be righteous before God. How do we get this righteousness? How do we get this perfect record? When Martin Luther thought about the righteousness of God, when he was studying Romans and came to these verses, man, it plagued him. The righteousness of God, he, he was thinking this is God's righteous judgment. And when it says that the righteous shall live by faith, he thought that, that, that the faithful people of God would show themselves faithful. How? By becoming righteous. By doing righteous things. And then he would come to this verse 17, and it would tear him up. Why is that? Well, he tried to do righteousness. He tried to be righteous, and he failed over and over again. He knew. He knew that he was a sinner. And then one day, God had mercy on him. This is what he says. At last, by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of faith, gift of God, namely by faith. In other words, righteousness is not something you can achieve on your own. It's not something that you perform and do and get. Righteousness is something you receive like a gift. 
And it comes through faith in Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life for you, the one who perfectly obeyed God's law. When you receive Jesus by faith, you receive his perfect record. When you receive Jesus by faith, you are cleansed by his blood. You receive his perfect righteousness. What does that mean for us this morning? Well, our theme this year is rest for the weary. You're going to hear it impact in various ways in various sermons. When we hear the gospel like this, it can give you rest. It can give you rest. Why? Because the perfect life that you are trying to live has already been lived for you. <clears throat> it can give you rest so that you can cease from trying to earn your way to God by being a moral achiever, by keeping his laws. It can give you rest so that you can cease from trying to gain other people's approval by performing, by being something. Or maybe this morning this describes you. It can give you rest in this way. You can cease from trying to prove to yourself that you are worth it, that you are significant, that you have to leave your mark in this world, that you have to leave a legacy by what you do. And if you're weary this morning from achieving, Jesus invites you to find your rest in him, to receive his perfect righteousness. Now, the other thing this morning I want you to take away and to think about as we think about the gospel fueling future plans is, is this question to you. How is the gospel fueling your future plans? Or is it fueling your future plans? Are, are you like me where the gospel had no part? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're approaching retirement or maybe you're in retirement. How does the gospel affect your future plans? Maybe it could affect your plans in this way, that you, you say, I'm going to have more time. I'm going to have more time on my hands and I'm going to open up my life, my home, and I'm going to welcome people the way Jesus has welcomed me. I'm going to serve my neighbors. I'm going to serve my church in that way. Maybe you're right in the middle of your career. You're not close to retirement, and you're thinking about future plans, your career, and what's going to happen. May I submit to you, how can the gospel shape your future plans? Maybe it shapes it in this way, that you're going to live your life day by day in the gospel. You're going to, you're going to do your work in such a way that it brings glory to God, and it speaks of a God of grace. You're going to love your coworkers. You're going to serve them. You're going to see them succeed and love them with the gospel, both in deed and in word. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are in school. How can the gospel shape your future plans? I want to say this. Let it shape it in this way that your future vocation is not just simply a means for you to achieve wealth. It's not simply a means for you to satisfy yourself and your own purpose. Let the gospel take you to where God is leading you. You know, we, we need Christians all over the world. We need Christians in the arts. We need Christians in technology. Lord knows we need Christians in politics. 
Let the gospel fuel you. Wherever God is taking you vocationally, let the gospel fuel you. You can live your life of faith where he has taken you. And there are some here this morning I want to speak to. God is calling you to gospel ministry. Maybe it's to preach the gospel. Maybe it's to teach the gospel, to encourage people. Maybe it's to work in the church. Maybe it's to serve in a ministry or to go on the mission field. Let me tell you this. There is no other fuel that is going to get you there to your future plans. And there's no other fuel that will sustain you when God gets you there. Let the gospel fuel your future plans. Every one of us here in this morning are thinking about the future. We're future-oriented. And so I encourage you in this way. Open up your hands in prayer to God. Open up your hands to God's will. Submit your desires to him. Opt in to God's community to be encouraged, to grow, to be strengthened. And as you consider your future plans, let the gospel, the power of God, fuel your future dreams. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you, <laughs> you're a mighty God, all-powerful, all-wise, and you are good. You are exceedingly good, and we can open up our hands, we can open up our lives, we can tell you our desires, and then we can rest, knowing that we are entrusting our plans to a God who loves and cares for us, who has better things planned for us than we do for ourselves. We only have to look at your dear son, and we see just how much you love and care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.